0: Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.
1: Hello and welcome to News from the Torah. This is Leah Aroni. Today is the 29th day of the Hebrew month of Adar, March 22nd, 2023, and we're about to start a new book of the Torah this week, the book of Vayikra, Leviticus, which is almost all of it is dedicated to animal sacrifices and to the worship ceremony of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and afterwards the two temples that stood in Jerusalem. But I would like to dedicate today's show to talking about the deeper meaning of the judicial reform that is happening in Israel today and the anti-government protests that have been um raging here for the past three months and are probably going to rage here for uh, numerous months to come. Because these protests are really not against the judicial reform, they're against the government itself. And the protesters together with the political backers will find the grounds and the reasons for the protests. But I don't want to talk about the politics of it and I don't want to talk about the exterior of it. I would like to probe deeper to understand what drives this wedge, what drives this conflict, what drives this debate, and I may have touched on this in one of my previous shows, but um, today I gave a class in the book of Tanya that I give every day, every week, and something in the teachings that we went over today actually explained this protest in a beautiful way the Balatanya explains, based on the Kabbalah and the Zohar, that there are six basic human traits that are called the Midod, the Spirod. They're basically emotional traits. They're human traits, but they're also a reflection of so-called divine traits, ways in which God interacts with the person, with the person and with the world. And For example, there is the trait of kindness and then there is a trait of discipline. And discipline and kindness have to have an interaction between them to create an ultimate balanced reality that has the kindness and the giving, what's called chesed, but also has the boundaries and the discipline, what's called gvura. And in this way, there are six main traits and they need to be balanced against each other. So what the Tanya explains is that in a wholly optimal setting, the six traits really understand they have to balance each other out. No one trait is more important than any other. Now, each human being comes into the world with a propensity for a certain trait. Some people are more disciplined oriented and some people are more giving oriented. That's fine, but that's just a propensity we really have to develop inside ourselves. balance in which we know how to use all the different traits and all the different dispositions in a balanced way and understand when to apply which one. And that takes a lot of judgment and I think that's really the main challenge of living a religious life where you understand that there are different values involved and you need to ask yourself in every single case, what does God want from me now? Which one of my character traits Which one of the propensities should I be applying now? Is this a situation for more giving or is this a situation for more boundaries? It's really a question that has to be answered almost moment by moment. We cannot be living on autopilot. On the other hand, says the Tanya, that when one trait, one approach thinks that it is the all and be all, and it's the most important, and each should be ruling over others, that's the definition of the opposite of holiness. Because God created a world balanced with all the traits, and all the traits come from God, and each one is godly, and they have to work in harmony. When one trait sticks out and says, I'm the most important, and I have to rule over others, that's the epitome of the opposite of holiness. I don't want to use certain words, words, so I'm just going to say it in a in a positive way. So this is actually very interesting because it aligns beautifully with very interesting research by Jonathan Hyde, who is an American political philosopher. And you can go online and read his books. And basically, over the past um decade or so he did a lot of research to understand how people make moral choices. In different countries, in different societies, he has interviewed, I think, tens of thousands of people in a very wide range of societies, and he came down with only six questions that all humans ask when trying to figure out if something is ethical and moral. There are really only six questions that define morality for humans. And it's so interesting that these six questions really parallel the six traits, six midot, six sphirot that we have in in the Kabbalah and in Hasidut. So these six questions are, first of all, is anybody getting hurt? Is there a victim in the story? Number two, is this fair? Maybe if, for example, I cheat on an exam, nobody gets hurt, but it's not fair. And we will all say that that's immoral. Number three, is there freedom that is taken away from somebody? Number four, is there a loyalty that is being violated? For example, if I burn the American flag or the Israeli flag, nobody gets hurt if nobody knows about it, but it's certainly unloyal to my country to do so. Number four, is there an authority that is being violated? For example, I'm a parent. If my child disobeys me, So if I'm a healthy parent, I'm not supposed to get hurt by that. But it's bad for the child and it's unethical because there's supposed to be parental authority. And when the child violates that parental authority or teacher's authority, that's unethical. And number five, is there a holiness that is being violated? So for example, if I take a holy object and I burn it or I misuse it or I abuse it, there's no victim involved once again, it's unholy and it violates this holiness. So these are the only basic six questions that humans ask to figure out if something is moral or ethical. But here is the real interesting finding of Jonathan Hyde. which Jonathan Hyde found that people who are um, pursuant to the liberal side of the political map, people who see themselves as liberals... They you really ask only one, maybe like one and a half questions? And basically the main measuring uh, stick for morality for liberals is, is anybody getting hurt? Is there a victim? And to a certain extent, liberals will ask two other questions. Is it fair? And is there liberty that is being violated? But really, really the big question, is there a victim? The other three parameters of holiness, um Loyalty and um, authority are just not on the liberal radar. It's not a question that liberals ask when they try to figure out if something is moral and ethical. And I have done this experiment with dozens upon dozens upon dozens of American college groups that come to Israel. I ask them a question like, if I was to take a tallit and I show them a tallit or an Israeli flag... And cut it up in the primacy of my own home. Nobody would know this, and use it to wash my windows or bathrooms. Would this be moral? And they look at me and say, "Look, it's it's not nice. It's not nice. It's not you know. It's not pleasant. It's not very Jewish." But in the end, it's just a piece of f- fabric, a, a flag or a talith. It's just a piece of fabric, does not it? Feelings. So really you can do whatever you want with it. And you know, one time I felt really brave and I asked the students, what if there was a brother or a sister and let's say they're in their 60s. So there are no consequences and nobody knows about this. And they go off to some place and they decide to have an intimate relationship. Their brother and a sister, there are no consequences to be had. And it's, you know, nobody gets hurt. Nobody knows about this. It's a mutual consensual decision. Is this moral or ethical? And they look at me, the students, and they say, "Like it's disgusting." But really, who can tell them what to do? It's their choice. If they, if, they're mutually consent, if there's mutual consensus and no, no, no consequences, who said this is wrong? And what I tried to explain to the students is that in their mind, once you take out the question of a victim, once it, nobody gets hurt, then they really have no tools to ascertain that something is ethical. On the other hand, when you ask conservatives or traditional people, people in traditional societies or religious societies, and this is not necessarily in the United States, that this would be in any country, what happens in most traditional or conservative or religious societies is that people try to make sense of all six questions and balance out all six questions in a way that they can find balance, in a way that in some cases they will prefer one value, in another case they will prefer the different value. But there is a really question of needing to consider all six values to get to an ethical decision. So in some cases, for example, the um, the weight of not hurting and people and not uh, um, putting... Boundaries on their freedoms will come up first. And in other cases, no, the question of holiness will come up first. So, the outcome of that is very, very interesting because what Hyde also found in his studies is that when liberals are asked to predict conservatives' answers to moral dilemmas, the liberals are not able to do th- so accurately. Well, when conservatives are asked to predict liberals' answers to certain moral questions, conservatives are much better at predicting what liberals will think. Why is this? Because conservatives understand the liberal uh, need to protect the victim. It's one of the six questions they ask themselves too. But in the liberal mind, the questions of authority, loyalty, and Holiness don't even come up. So when they look at the conservative, they really don't understand what you're trying to do. They don't. They can't wrap their head around it. And more so, what liberals see when they look at conservatives is you're hurting people for no good reason because these values of uh, loyalty, um, sanctity, and authority are just not values. They don't register. So the liberals cannot understand what's the reasoning of the conservatives who are doing what they're doing? So when you look at the world from the liberal perspective, it makes sense internally because people are being um, boundaried, people are being prevented from doing what they're doing, people's rights are being taken away for these things that are just not not a value, like we don't understand what you want. And this is exactly the core or one of the cores of the current split in the Israeli society, there's a certain minority that comes, and it's a minority, it's about twenty percent of the Israeli society that is um, ultra liberal, um, universalist, and and is less connected to the Jewish heritage and the and the Torah. And I'm, you know, of course, the protesters who are religious, as some of them, a few of them. And of course, the protesters who are very connected to to the heritage, some of them, not a lot of them, but the core. I'm talking about the you know the main core of protesters come from Israel's left wing, which is ultra liberal, and they say we want to love whatever we want to love, we want to eat whatever we want to eat, we want to do whatever we want to do, and we don't want any limitations to what we want to do. And the Israeli courts have really been going with that for the past. 30 years of using um, the judicial the judiciary to push an ultra-liberal agenda very often at the expense of various groups and people's rights. But it's this liberal agenda, this liberal approach, which the courts have been passing. And now when people on the Israeli liberal left look at the other option, because they don't see these other values, they don't understand what the conservatives want, they're this is going to be a di- dictatorship because as soon as we cannot have full freedom to do whatever we want and as soon as we need to curtail our freedom for these notions which have really no value, like holiness, authority, loyalty, why do we need to curtail our wants and wishes and rights for these non-values? And any indication that we would need more balance and we would need to take into account these other values which uh there's many many people in the Israeli um, society hold dear because the Israeli society is much more conservative actually than for example the American society it's much more traditional uh, and many more people are religious or religiously observant so um from the liberal perspective yeah this looks like a dictatorship <laughs> i understand the internal the internal thinking of course it doesn't make sense because these other values are values from a Torah perspective. Um, but I think what people on the right and in the conservative circles need to understand is they need to understand why the liberals are thinking what they're thinking. Okay, It's not that they don't have values, they do. Um, and I think what sometimes works is to help people face their own prejudices. When I talk to American uh, college groups, I, I start out by asking, Do you think that uh, religion is primitive and backwards? How many of you think that? And mostly like 70 or 80% of hands go up. Do you think that women in religion are subjugated? And about 80% of the hands go up. And I ask a few more questions like that. And then I say, Look, <laughs> friends, um, you need to face your own prejudice. You're coming with a bias. Now, I'm not going to talk you out of your bias, but I would like you to please realize that you have one before we start having this conversation. And usually my presentation is 30, 40 minutes, so I'm not gonna change people's thinking. Certainly don't plan to do so, but what I do do is present this research and some of the questions that we ask ourselves and some of the issues that are uh, current And then people look at me and say, we've never heard this before. American liberal college students or graduates, people in their 20s, tell me, we've never heard of this uh, conservative perspective. We've never heard of these values. We've never seen things this way. And when you show people um, this approach, then you can start having a conversation because otherwise it's just two sides screaming at each other. And I think... When it comes to the Temple service, it's so important to realize what the Torah tells us in this uh, Temple service, which is really all about animal sacrifices, is not that we need to be sacrificing animals. It is actually a very interesting um, debate between 12th century commentators, the Rambam and the Ramban, Rabbi Moshe ben um, Nachmanides, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon, It's a very interesting debate already in the 12th century whether in the third temple there will be animal sacrifices. One of them said for sure, and the other said no. It was something that the Torah gave the Jewish people for the time, but it's not something that's going to happen in the future in the third temple. But the basic idea of an animal sacrifice is for a person to look at this animal and say, this animal is being brought as a sacrifice for God, and it really represents me because I'm supposed to be dedicating my life and all of my for, my capabilities and all of my abilities and all of my life as I'm living, not as a dead person, as I'm living to God. And just as this animal is now being burnt as an offering for God, my life should be an offering for God. I should be living for God, not dying for God, but living for God. Rabbi Aaron Soloveitchik. Who was a very prominent rabbi in Chicago, used to say that it is much e- easier to die for God than just to live for God, because living for God requires making decisions that are not simple every single day. But when an animal is wholly offered to God, that's called the korban olah, All of it is burned up to, for God. It's a message to the people, to all of us, because that was a daily offering. It's an it's a message to us that everything we do in our day, our entire existence should really be focused on God. Every single day of our life should be an offering for God in all of its entirety. And when there is a peace offering, that's another different kind of offering called korban shlamim or a peace offering, that is, some of it goes on the altar and is burnt for God and some of it is eaten by the kohanim, the priests. And somebody is eaten the, by the person and shared with the community. That's a different kind of message that everything we do in our life should be shared with the community and should be um, connecting us both to God, but also to the people around us. And then there is the sin offering in which a person says that this animal was, is now being brought as an offering for me. And it's a reminder that I should gather myself and stay away from things that are bad for me, for God, for community, And once again, rededicate myself to godliness. That's the idea of the temple and the sacrifices. And I think it's an important reminder for us. Do we live a life that is all um, focused on myself, my rights, and what do I want? And then if that's my approach, then yes, I will be here fighting for my rights and for the rights of others, because rights and what every person gets to do and personal freedom to do whatever we want then becomes the all and be all, the end of all. Or do we look at a world, we say this entire world is is full of nuance. It's full of so many questions. It's full of so many different issues and situations. And my job to understand that I'm here to make the best decision out of these different options every second of my life. And God is challenging me to rise above my natural inclinations and serve Him making choices which are not always easy. And I need to put myself aside a little bit to be asking what not what I want and what are my rights, but what does God want and what are my responsibilities? This is really the crux of a religious life, not serving myself, but serving God through doing good. And yes, I am one of the people, I'm one of the creatures in the world, and of course, I should be doing good for myself. Obviously, we're not into self-sacrifice. We're into doing good for myself, for my community, and for God, living a healthy lifestyle that is, first of all, positive for myself, that feeds me and nurtures me and supports me, and gives me strength, and makes me um, strong, and confident, and capable, and and full-blooded, and living this beautiful life in a way that's enjoyable, obviously. It has to be this way. I have to live, and that's the uh, um, definition of happiness. Happiness is living with forces of life, feeling alive. That's You can't do without that, but that's only a tool. That's not the And that's a means. And the end is using all of that confidence and ability and capability and happiness and life force to do good for the world and to do good for God. Because otherwise we're just worshiping ourselves. And that's a form of idol worship. When we turn ourselves into idols. When we turn our own rights into idols. And if we forget this other part of dedicating our life to serving God, and we only focus on ourselves, then we can really get into a fight for existence. And what's so scary about the protests that are happening right now in the streets of Israel is that they're existential, and they're acted out with no boundaries. You know, I've seen many political protests and many political movements in my in my in my life, and certainly in the thirty years in Israel, that were always boundaries, always in the Israeli debate, there were boundaries that the red lines that were not crossed. Certain things were held holy. This is not the case right now. Everything is up for grabs. There are no rules. It's just chaos and anarchy. That's how I feel. And the protesters are getting away with it. The police is really not fully putting stops on this. The judicial system is really not pulling a stop on that. And, and it's, it's quite scary. But on another hand, in physics, there is what's called the theory of chaos. And the theory of chaos says that the world develops through quantum leaps. It's not an straight evolution where things develop, 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 and then they change. But, you know, if we were to believe in evolution, um, so for a monkey to become a human being, there has to be a jump, a leap. So let's take that just to our society. Our society evolves, but then there is something that happens that just a quantum leap, like the printing press, when that was developed, that was you know, created, they created a whole new reality that could not be imagined before that. Or when the internet was developed, that created a whole new reality that couldn't be imagined before. You couldn't even think of, of the possibilities that are now available with the internet. Something happens, and there's a quantum leap. But before the quantum leap, there's usually chaos. When the world le- gets to chaos, when everything is disconnected, this is when the conditions are ripe from this quantum leap. So I think that the chaos we're seeing right now in Israel it's just that it's it's everything coming apart. Like you have to, you have to leave your preconceived notions. You have to leave everything you know in order to go to a higher stage of awareness. Um, just like a plant, when it's planted, when you plant a seed, it has to fall apart before it can become something bigger. Before it can become a plant, as long as the seed remains a seed and doesn't decompose, it cannot become something else, it cannot become a plant. So what I'm seeing right now is that basically everything we know about Israel and the Israeli reality is falling apart. And on the one hand, it is very scary to watch this. It is scary because we don't know what's next. But on the other hand, I'm full of faith. I'm full of faith in God who is driving history. Yes, we have choices and each and every one of us has a choice in how we approach life and what we do and we're responsible for our actions. And at the same time, God is driving history. And we are in the redemption process. God is for sure going to bring redemption. And redemption basically is a higher state of consciousness. It's a state of consciousness in which we see God in this world, in which God is not hidden where we can perceive God clearly in the world—that's that's redemption, and God is taking us there. But together, we have to break the mold of our um, current reality, of our current perception, and it's painful and it's scary, and it's a, it's an existential crisis but I'm so sure that on the other side of the crisis is something beautiful and unimaginable, something that we've been striving for for the past 3,000 years of history. And with this, um, I would like to uh, end the show because we are on the cusp of the Hebrew month of Nisan. Uh, this Thursday will be Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of the month of Nisan, and Nisan is the month of the holiday of Pesach. It is said that in the past, in Egypt, the Jews were redeemed in Nisan. And in the future, in the time of the future redemption, the Jews will be redeemed in Nisan. So I'm seeing what's going on right now with all its gory, with all its gore, as a something that's leading us to this redemption. And I really wish you and myself and all of us that this Nissan, we will be redeemed. We will get to a high state of consciousness, where we will get to a state of brotherhood and love and understanding. We will be able to appreciate the differences and through the differences, come together to serve God instead of being so focused on ourselves and our own existential issues. So with this, I would like to uh, end the show. Wishing you an amazing Rosh Chodesh, amazing month of Nisan. And I will see you next week here on News from the Torah. Howdy, this is Rita from League City, Texas, now living in Israel, and though my heart may have belonged to Texas, it now belongs to
0: Israel and all the fantastic show hosts at Israel News Talk Radio. Hi, this is Michael Solomon from Kiryat Darba, Israel, and why do I love listening to Israel News Talk Radio? Because I love listening to the interesting interviews they do and their news reporting that most other media sources don't cover.